Hey there, tape heads. Welcome to a very special episode of Make Us a Mixtape. I'm your host, Marty DeRosa. I'm your other host, Paul Farvar. And we have uh, we have went out and got ourselves a true music insider. Paul and I like to joke that we're music insiders. Yes. We may or may not be. That's uh, up for debate. What's not up for debate is our guest uh, doing a very uh, solid favor to us by being on the show is a absolute music insider. 100%. Uh, you might know him from MTV, Fuse, GQ, uh, Billboard, a whole bunch of things. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, John Norris. What's up, guys? How are you? <laughs> very dramatic. Very nice. Greetings from, greetings from Brooklyn. Uh, so, John, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for doing this podcast. Um, and you were uh, gracious enough to send us your mix, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, no. But before we do that, uh, we just want to talk to you a little bit about uh, sort of being a, a music insider and, uh, you know, be, making this your life, what was sort of the, the path to, uh, to getting where you, where you are today? It's funny, you know, I was a journalism major at NYU and I, I, uh, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted to do journalism, which by the way, now, if I'm not mistaken at NYU now, a couple of decades later, you can't only major in journalism, which says something about the, the profession, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to have a second major from what I understand. Um, but back then you could, and I did. And, um, but as far as music, you know, I worked at the radio station a bit and I just landed an internship at MTV. And that was back in the days when it was quite conceivable that an internship could turn into a job. Nowadays, it's gotten so big, not only there, but other media places that that's not necessarily a given by any means. And, um, but it did, it turned into a job as a writer. And I wasn't on, I wasn't on camera at first at all. And um, they brought, they brought in Kurt, Kurt Loder, like, mm -hmm. I think in like, I, I was gonna say like 88, 89 or something like that. They brought in Kurt. And so I was just one of his writers at first. And then they needed an alternate because when they would send Kurt away, because they no longer had the VJs doing the news, they needed an alternate. And I was just sort of like, Seriously, right place, right time. I mean, I, I mean, I had done acting as a kid. Like me and my, my brother was a big playwright actually. And me, but we started out as like kid actors, you know? And um, so I, I, I'd done some on-camera stuff. And so I was just comfortable on camera, I guess. And they were, they were like, okay, you're good enough. Yeah, I read, I read the, uh, I read that I Want My MTV, that oral history. And it oh, seemed yeah. like, especially in the early days, it seemed like a lot of people got jobs of just like, being there or like, we knew that guy, he'd hang out at the club a lot. So we thought he could talk about music or yeah. like Headbangers Ball and stuff like that. Like a lot of it seemed, I think that was such a, a cool part of the channel at the time where it seemed so loose and just like, all right, you could do this. You're fresh yeah, out of school. Very, very, very organic and stuff. And like, um, you know, I mean, Martha Quinn was like kind of a little legend in my life because she worked, she lived in and worked in the dorm that I, a few years later was living in at NYU, which also weirdly enough, it's called Weinstein. And um, that's where a gentleman by the name of Rick Rubin uh, started the, yeah. in the yeah. early the, er, the early formations of Def Jam. And, um, and uh, you know, and the BC boys used to, not, not when I was there, but the BCs would come in and like hang out in the lobby and stuff. And so, uh, but that, so that my, our dorm has a lot of history to it. How was that? When you would first be on MTV, were you just noticing people like you'd walk down the street and people would be like, oh my God, you're the guy from, would you get like on the subway and stuff like the stairs? Well, I mean, it was gradual because like 
I was just Kurt sort of filling like in the, in the beginning. And it wasn't until like probably, you know, early nineties when I was on regularly. And then I was kind of between 90, I think three and five, I was sort of splitting news duties and VJing duties. Cause they, uh, it's a long story, but so then, yes, then I started, then people started recognizing, and then it was like, you know, and they still do it, but now it's, now it's all, it's, it's definitely older people because I've been off, I've been away from there for more than 10 years. So, but you know, it, there, sometimes it'll surprise me like a 20 year old will like know, know who I am. And, Cause I did a on camera stuff after MTV, we, a friend and I started a little startup website with a ton of video. We had a video interview series and we did a ton of it, like maybe a hundred episodes of that. So real music heads, like, and that was more indie rock oriented. Um, and so I'll get some, sometimes I get recognized from that even today, but yeah. So, um, I, you know, when I'm out, like, not that I'm out this year anywhere, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I still, sure. I still get not a lot, but you know, fair amount. Before we move on from MTV, can you just share like what, what's your one of your favorite moments from uh, being on the air or just at MTV that that resonates with you still today, in terms of uh, or one of them? I, I mean, it's like, man, I I don't know. It's so I okay. So I'll tell you one in terms of live sh like live events. I, I give this answer a lot to people because it just stuck in my head because it was really the first big trip they ever let me go on. It was definitely the first international trip I ever went on, which was to go cover the, uh, the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at Wembley in 1993. Um, and I still watch sometimes, I'll go back and watch clips from that now. And I look at like the, the shots of, of like Wembley and I, and I, I was like, I, I can't believe I was there watching Annie Lennox and David and David Bowie doing Under Pressure. And like, yeah. I, I mean, just, and and it, sometimes it's weird to me to think that I was at, actually at those things, you know, or, and then as far as the other things, man, I mean, I don't know. I, not, I don't want to get dark because my playlist is <laughs> dark enough. Um, but, you know, you were, I was there for like a lot of, a lot of, death and a lot of dark times too, you know? I mean, I Kurt Kurt took the lead on um, the Kurt Cobain death, but I was I was sort of like the second anchor for that. And, um, you know, Biggie and Tupac and Aaliyah. And I mean, it's just, it was, it, you know, and the weird thing is I left at the very end of 08. And six months later, Michael Jackson died. And so they called me back and I said, would you mind, we, we, I know we let you go, but would you mind coming back for like a week and like doing stuff about Michael? And I was like, sure. Like, like what you did in the past, you were good yeah. at that stuff. <laughs> yeah, cause I, I never really did a proper sit down with Michael, but I had done like three different shoots with him. And I went to Neverland Ranch, actually that, you asked me what's a highlight. I mean, just, there's not that many people who can say they were at Neverland, you know, Oprah was there and people like that, but. Um, yeah, that was a trip. Um, what, what, um, what do you, how do you learn about music now? Like what are, what are the ways that you learn about new music, uh, now? Well, I mean, because I'm a freelance writer and really I'm, you know, um, if you look at my, if you look at my Twitter profile, 
the first word on it, and not to be all like, the first word, word on it is retrophobe. <laughs> and and I, I, I tell people that because I kind of want to head them off of the past sometimes because I feel like a lot of people, what they want to do is talk to me about whatever happened 25 years ago that was my favorite thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I am as engaged, if not more so engaged in, in new music today than I was when I left MTV. Um, so the, to answer your question, I mean, in the way that any freelance writer does, like my inbox has is, is got 75 emails a day with either new tracks, new videos, or new complete al- albums or EPs. Um, and it's all I can do to keep up with it, to be honest. And then of course, you know, Spotify. And I got my, you know, my favorite playlist on Spotify and stuff. And 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 um rap caviar is a favorite of mine. Cause I've also like I, I'm a very um uh genre agnostic, I think is the term person. I, I really like in the last couple of years I've been doing more hip hop writing, but I guess indie rock was I mean. Of these post-MTV years, indie rock is really what I've been most immersed in because of our, the website I mentioned earlier that we started was very much focused on the the indie rock of the late 2000s. You know, it was all, I did Animal Collective and Deer Hunter and Arcade Fire and, and all, all the, all the, the not, not only the big bands of that era, but smaller artists as well. Um, Do you ever think there could be like a rock band that could like sort of put rock back as the number one sort of uh, music? It's interesting. It's an interesting question because, you know, in the early 2000s, we had things like, I don't know if you remember this famous cover of Rolling Stone and I I forgot what year it was, but it had um, Craig, the young singer from The Vine, sort of screaming, the Australian band The Vine screaming, and it said, rock is back. Yeah. And I I can't tell you how many times at least up until the two through the 2000s, I remember seeing various takes on that idea that rock is back. I think part of the problem now is that culturally, we're in a place where what was so much a part of rock traditionally, not, and I, it's, it's hard to make, you know, big broad sta- statements about this, but hedonism, you know, uber masculinity, mm-hmm. that, that I think a lot of those things are a tough fit in, in mainstream pop culture now. And, you know, and, you know, I mean, I don't have to explain why that is. I mean, and in many respects, I think that's a good thing, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't amazing rock bands that, that are plenty, you know, feminist and, you know, to use an overplayed word, woke, um, the thing about indie rock is it's, it, it, it's never, I don't think it really aspires to have huge breakthroughs to the mainstream. I mean, you can count on a couple of hands, the vampire weekends of the world who've actually gone to that arena level, you know, Arcade Fire is another one they have certainly LCD sound system. Sure. There are bands that have done that, but many, many more from whose heyday was in say 08, 09, who either maybe have gone on to other things and broken up or, I don't know. It's it just um it's interesting. I um you know the two last bands we've got on my list today, um one is still around the and um and the other one went away for a long time and 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 recently sort of tried to make a comeback 
and, and it was it was a grudging comeback. I think we'll talk about them later. But yeah, for sure. Like you know, two interesting examples of the way you can handle a rock career. You know, mm -hmm. in some cases, the leader of the band is like, you know what, this had its moment, and it was it was it was what it was. But I need to, personally to go do something else, and the band can't really exist without him. And I, you know, um, and then in other cases. They slog on and on and on, and we'll talk about this particular band that has, whose lineup has ebbed and flowed, but one guy has, yeah. has remained. Um, oh yeah, uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I don't know if I answered your question about sure. it. And then before we before we jump into your mix, uh, what's sort of your relationship with making mixtapes, whether they be on cassette or CD, like back in the day, what was sort of your approach to a mixtape? Um, I was, I was just like, I was, I was, I was gonna sound corny, but I would do it. I, I would make them real like personal mm -hmm. and I would make, I, I would, I went through a period, I got, I don't know when, probably like mid nineties where I would, I was really into like making them for individuals and they, they would be like, I give it to them because it was my impression. It was like my reflection of who I, how I saw them. And um, it was just as a like as a gift, and more than more than like me trying to tell them something about how I felt or anything like that. But but it was more of a you know I would sometimes give them as gifts, you know, like just Paul made a mix for an ex after they broke up, which I think is very strange. Wow, yeah, yeah that, I, that's been very controversial on the on the uh, podcast. Was it an angry one? No, it was more like I the the story goes that I I was hoping she'd listen to it with her new boyfriend or husband and the, and the guy would be like, "This is a really good mix. Who made this?" And then she'd just be like, "Look off to the distance and be like, just someone I used to know." You know. Well, you had the whole scenario like it played out. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Did did you uh when you were exactly you weren't exactly over her? I take it. <laughs> I just want to be remembered. You know, don't we all? What did uh, when you would make the mix tapes for these people? Were you introducing them to new music? Uh, that okay, in some cases, the, yeah. You were like the tastemaker in, in a way, right? Uh, I guess, yeah. Especially because sometimes it would be I'd include music that they weren't necessarily aware of or would not necessarily gravitate to themselves. You know, like I mean, I, I've always been a real weird mutt in terms of, especially because my job require, required me to do, to cover a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't necessarily go home and listen to, you know, um, on my own. And this is nothing, okay, well, the example I'm about to give you is nothing against the band I'm about to, the band I'm about to mention. But like, I did a lot of boy band stuff in the early, in the late nineties and early two thousands because, well, Kurt was never gonna do that. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and like, and I actually enjoyed, I, I didn't mind it at all. And um, especially in the case of Backstreet Boys, I didn't mind it because I got to know those guys and they were really good guys. And um, I also think that I can 100% stand by the statement that I want it that way is one of the great boy band songs of all time. And uh, I, on our, we had, a, when TRL finished, we did a big like two hour finale of TRL and they did the TRL top 10 songs of all time countdown. And the one segment they allowed me to do, cause you know, Carson was there, that, all the all the hosts were there. But the one segment they could let me do was um, was to be with Backstreet and introing 
I went it that way, which was like number three or four on the all-time countdown. Um, but I guess, I'm sorry, I'm really rambling, but the point oh, I was going to make, back in the day, I would like, I would be interviewing Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or whatever, and then I would go home and listen to like Neutral Milk Hotel, you know, <laughs> and, and like, what if you had given them a copy of Neutral Milk Hotel and it would have been like this like Beatles well, becoming yeah, a Dylan, you know, you know might have changed history. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think they were really making a, necessarily a lot of artistic choices themselves, you know, um, but uh, I know. I mean, actually, a couple of, a couple of the guys in the in Backstreet probably would have dug it. Um, and for all I know, they... No, maybe not. I was going to say they knew. knew, knew Milk this would be a Hotel. very interesting game if we knew all of the Backstreet Boy members and we could say if they know who Mil Neutral Milk Hotel is. I had to put money. I put it on AJ as the one most likely to yeah, know. He dated somebody who was into them. Yeah, or something. yeah. Did yeah, you, exactly. You were exposing people to the music. Uh, would you then, uh, am I correct in understanding that you would put those songs on the mix yeah. to be like, okay, well, well, this reminds me of you. And uh, even though I don't listen to. Yeah, usually if they reminded me of the person, it had something to do with the lyric, you know? Uh, and, and so I was, um, but you know, that's the added bonus if you're introducing them to something they might not, they might not otherwise know, you know? Right. Um, I don't know. I think, I don't know, genres, genres come and go, at least for me, genres come and go. I've never said, I'm not only an indie rock fan or I'm only a pop fan or I'm only a hip hop fan, um, but I am, there's a sensibility that is consistent for me from since I was 12, probably, you know, 13, um, that I think there's a through line sensibility in these five songs, I think, that I, I didn't just choose them with the theme that I wrote you guys, I was calling it, but but also because it's kind of part of my, of me and my personality, you know? Yeah, sure. so let's jump into it. Uh, song number one, Omar Apollo uh, from Hobart, Indiana, right where I grew up in Cherville, Indiana. Unbelievable. So no you idea. know Hobart? Yeah, Indiana. oh yeah, I've performed at, at the uh, the big theater in Hobart before. Oh, yeah. Big oh. yeah, it was great. So uh, how did you hear about Omar Apollo? Um, I discovered Omar a couple of years ago. He's been around making music for about, well, releasing music on independently for like four years. And he is a first generation Mexican-American kid, um, not kid, he's 23, but, um, but uh, sort of picked up a guitar at age 11, uh, youngest in a family of five, hardworking Mexican-American immigrant Chicano family um, in Hobart. Um, and safe to say his parents weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea of him becoming a musician. Yeah. Um, he's, I think he's got a doctor in his family. And I, he, like I said, he's the youngest of- Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? So, and, uh, uh, but anyway, he was, he was making like more kind of rock oriented stuff as a teen, but then he, he kind of discovered his love of funk and soul. And man, he's just got, he's, even his early stuff is great. But it's just he's he's got such a like a natural, just a just such a flair for it, and um, and uh, he's just got this this great soulful vibe. Plus, he's an incredible entertainer and dancer. He's got like Justin Timberlake. I mean, I hate to invoke Michael Jackson's name because that's like you know that's like a you know 
almost yeah, sacrilege, but well, if anyone uh, can do that, it would be you because you <laughs> had an Everland. You've been there, so, so yeah. Let's actually let's play a little bit of Kamikaze, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Omar here. Sure, sure. Just a little listener. Yeah, very. Uh, it's got, it's definitely got like a world sound to it. Like you could tell the dude's been out of Hobart, Indiana, or the influences are <laughs> outside of Hobart, Indiana. He has, he's living, he's now lived in LA for like two years. And, uh, and he's gone through about in the last year, I want to say like four hair colors, um, uh, you know, teal and pink and something that he didn't really feel comfortable doing in Hobart. Yeah. Uh, but uh, any case, but, but he's got, you know, his icons are now, I mean, Prince and Boosie Collins. And interestingly enough, uh, he celebrated the release of his most recent project called Apollonio, which is his middle name, just two weeks or a week and a half ago with a live stream show from Paisley Park. So, and you guys should check it out. It's really, it's, I mean, it was amazing. And, and they had a socially distanced audience there and everything, but um, he went through the whole new record. Plus he did a lot of his stuff and he covered Prince's I Want to Be Your Lover, which is one of my favorites. And um, he was great. He was just, he was great. And it was his first live show, obviously for obvious reasons, since I think March. Um, How do you feel watching Zoom shows? Like I know they did the Save Our Stages things a couple weeks ago. How do you feel watching uh, some of those performances? Um, you know, I, I guess now I'm kind of used to it, but uh, uh, in, I mean, in his case, it was really, I mean, it's multi-camera. I mean, this was like, this was impressive. I, I, I didn't really, I, I didn't realize, first of all, the Paisley Park had that kind of a performance hall in it, you know, like a live showroom in it. Um, but this was, this was really impressive. I mean, everything from the lights to the bands, everything. Um, so yeah, I mean that was that's amazing. I, I don't know. I guess none of us really know when he's or anyone's going to get to tour yet. Yeah. Um, but the thing about I wanted to say about Kamikaze is Omar is um, as as amazing he is as he is with music and and just has this natural flair for kind of funk and soul. He um he's not been real personal with lyrics until it's it's been a gradual thing him sort of opening up in lyrics and the reason I chose kamikaze is just because it's got these really like beautiful personal like moments in it lyrically about a, a trip that he took and driving 19 hours to Georgia and rain soaked December and and uh there was I think a hook up with someone on the, kind of on the DL that he doesn't really want to talk about but um he's one of those like I just want the song to speak for itself kind of people, which is like fine. I'm not going to like press him for the dirt, but you know, um, he's, he's great. And I, I mean, I, I expect so far he's resisted signing with a major label too. So um, we'll see where things go, but I, I expect things are going to, going to keep going, going on. Uh, really you already had the, this video on YouTube had so many, it already had so many watches. Yeah. So What's the, I mean, does he even need to sign with the label at this point? Good question, you know? I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I think that these days, it depends on the kind of music you make. I think whether going with a major even makes sense. 
You know, someone else I interviewed recently is 24K Golden, who's like a young hip hop pop star who's just blown up with like three like mega hits in the last 18 months, <clears throat> including this one called Mood that has been like one of the biggest hits of the summer this year. Um, and he went immediately with Sony, with Columbia, like as soon as they like offered him the deal. And I think that's worked out well for him because he's got, he makes the kind of music that fits very comfortably on, you know, an iHeart radio station um, or whatever. Omar's being a little bit, just a little bit subtler. Still, I mean, I don't, I, it's not like I, I couldn't hear it on pop radio, a lot of what he does, but because it's like a little less, you know, big and brash than, than, uh, than a lot of pop. I think it makes sense for him to stay independent for now. Yeah. And our next guy is definitely even more independent than Omar because he's earlier in his career. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll start playing some Curtis Waters freckles. Yeah, this is like another song where you, I mean, like, you could hear this on the radio for sure. Like, there's so many songs where. It's just a flip of a coin or whatever, and it's always been that way. And like Paul said, there's sometimes I'll I'll see a new artist and start discovering them and watching videos, and it'll say like 5.4 million views, and it's like right. there's I mean there's so many people out there who you just don't know about that are that are right. doing just fine on their own. Well, you know, with in Curtis's case, I'll try to make a long story short, but he's a Nepali kid who uh, moved to Canada when he was young. Now lives in North Carolina, uh, completely like bedroom artist hip-hop pop artist but he absolutely blew up in the spring not with freckles the one we just played but with a song called stunning that was this viral monster because uh he did a very clever tiktok marketing campaign before even the song even came out and stunning if you check out stunning i i it's in the hundreds of millions of streams and i i don't know what its views are on youtube but it's it's certainly in the well into the millions of views so Stunning really kicked the door open for Curtis. Um, he had, again, big labels waving big checks at him. And he's like, no, no, I just want to do a distribution deal, which he did with BMG. But um, uh, it allowed him to put out a succession of singles during the summer. And each one was, he really is like a very eclectic kid, um, interested in like emo, emo rock and emo pop but all equally interested in like folk and singer songwriting kind of stuff. And then, but his background is really hip hop. So he's, you know, I think that, and, and, you know, it's, again, I hate to make statements that are too broad, but one of the really like hardening things that I find among like Gen Z artists and stuff is that the whole idea of genre is kind of almost like uh the thing of the past. Yeah, you know? for sure. I think that started too with like Napster when you could just grab all these random songs and then it just kind of kept going from there. And it's like, it's not like they have a favorite radio station. Like you said, it's just Spotify or YouTube or however they're getting their music. And it's just these giant mixes of all different yeah. styles. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one other thing I want to add about Curtis is that he's also, and this is again, I think a mark of younger people uh, another sort of stigma that's fallen by the wayside is younger people are more, I think generally, at least my experience is comfortable talking about 
you know, mental health issues and anxiety. And Curtis has been in and out. I mean, he is a 16. He was hospitalized for mental health issues and had to drop out of school. Then he went to North UNC Greensboro, was diagnosed bipolar and was put on this regimen of like six pills a day. There's a song on his album called Six Pills. And it sounds all dark, but the thing is, you listen to this record, the name of the album, by the way, is Pity Party. It just came out last month because he kind of turns angst on its head. Um, and it's, and, 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 kind of, and the, the majority, the vast majority of the record is, is upbeat and hope, and it's got hopeful music to it. When you drill down into the lyrics, there's some dark shit on there. Like um, the latest single is called Shoelaces. And when he talked, he says, tying, tying, tying my shoe and tying a noose is one of the lines in it. So he's had, I mean, there've been dark chapters for him, um, but this particular song, Freckles, he was, was inspired by a girl that he met while he was actually in rehab for his depression and stuff. And she, um, there's a line in the song, your scars, they remind me of all that you've been through, but you're here, you're still here smiling. And he just, he wanted to write about her because he took inspiration from how she'd even had a like rougher road than he had, but it managed to still have optimism and hopes for the future. So I'm getting really heavy here. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's all good. That's what we're here for. That's what we like. We're a lyric guy. I mean, like, are yeah. you more of a lyric guy or the, the I, is I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real lyric guy and, and I've got friends who are not at all mm -hmm. like, you know, like, well, I'll be into a song and, We'll, we'll, we'll both be into a record and I'll be like, what is, like my friend CJ, I'm like, what does he say? What is he saying there? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> he, could care, he could care less, you know? It's, and and I've, I've always got to know, you know? And I, I, you know, whenever I'm about to interview an artist, one of my first questions to the publicist before, like days before is, do you have the lyrics? Please send me the lyrics. Um, and, there was a time when artists were a little more reluctant to share them, but I find, mo especially younger artists, for the most part, they they will. And now with Genius posting pretty much lyrics to everything, you know, you can always, or I, I often go to Genius to, to check on lyrics. Yeah, and that's the, not, you, now you just go on your phone and get all the lyrics. Like back in the day, you'd be like, what are they saying? And then you hope you exactly. knew, but now it's like on your phone instantly, you get all the lyrics and yeah, I think you're right with there, the, all the stigmas about, you know, mental health and things like that. And people are just, you know, just telling the, what these songs are about. And most people, it seems like, are writing their own songs. You know, like these kids in bedrooms aren't having some, you know, Swedish duo write these songs like in the, you know, the late 90s or anything like that. So it's like, this is what I'm writing about. This is what I know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's a, that's a that's a that's a cool thing. I like I like the realness, the organic nature. And, you know, that's. Say what you will about the internet. Say what you will about social media. But I mean, the what what the likes of SoundCloud has done in enabling kids with nothing more than a laptop to you know actually get their music heard by you know in some cases it'll catch fire in one way or another. Someone the right person will hear it, and um, you know it's uh, it's good. It's an it's an encouraging thing. It, 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 it means there's a lot more music out there, obviously, to sift through, but, you know, it is I mean, what it this is. This song, you can tell that not, not only is it catchy and popular, easily, they, I could see it being licensed everywhere. And then also, you can tell that he has this background in 
in, in listening to either emo rock or angst, as you say, or whatever, because there is that hook feeling of ro not rock, but like, you know, going back to the 90s style of music where you don't see that a lot with hip hop, at least right. other songs that you have on your list. So it's true. Yeah. And, you know, we we bonded over some favorite songs. I'm not going to say one of them because it's our last song on the playlist today on the on the mixtape today. But uh, that when I heard that Curtis was into that particular song, I was like, you're my boy. If because if, ah. that song, well, I'll tell we'll talk more about it. But, um, you know, for a 20 year old to know, even know a particular song from the and it is a big song, right. but mm -hmm. a song from 25 years ago is, is something. And and then also to really connect with it. Well, Another one he cited was um. I Miss You, the Blink-182 song, I Miss You, yeah. which is, that song is just like fucking, that, oh, can I say that? Can I? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, uh, you know, that, that song just, that's another one that rips my heart out. And you know, when I tell some certain friends, some of like my brainier indie, more indie friends that I love songs like that, which there was a time when I wanted to front and be all like, oh, that emo, you know, I, I don't, I have no use for that because it, it was juvenile, whatever. It's weird. Now I've reached a point in life where I just don't give a fuck what whether people think it's cool or not. What right. I, you know, and um, I just don't. And like, so I, I, freely admit how much I love a lot of that, the music of that era. And you know what? People like the kid on my T-shirt. May he rest in peace, little peep. They discovered the, the, you know, the joys of of emo rock too, and uh, incorporated into what they did. So we we did a we did a. A, a, a recent podcast where we made each other mixes from 1999 and Blink-182 comes up a lot uh, for us too because at the time they came out I was like you where I was like ah like I can't admit to liking this stuff but now I've embraced the fact that bands like that were a part of our you know are a part of our life and that we do like those songs and for this guy uh, with Curtis you can tell that he was influenced by that and by the Pumpkins which are also for me, one of the greatest bands of all time, but we'll get into that later. So I kind of like that. It's funny that I didn't even know that background about him. And this was a song that resonated with me. And you yep. can tell that he listened to that kind of style of writing a song, having lyrics and having a hook all at once. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So John, we'll, we'll keep your uh, fun loving uh, mix going with the <laughs> next song entitled PTSD. Uh, <laughs> Uh, by G. Erbo featuring Juice World, Chance the Rapper, and Lil Uzi Vert, uh, Chicago guy. All Chicago guys, yeah. Three, three, three out of four, Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. is just i mean back when when you know hip-hop was first coming out or you know like biggie and tupac and things like that it's like 
to think that somebody would be rapping about having mental illness, like in the past would have been such a like a weak look or something. And this is just like, why not talk about this? And the, and the, and the melodic nature of where hip hop is at these days too. You know, I mean, back in the day, the real, you know, the bar spitters, you know, and, that, and look, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of the quote unquote golden age of hip hop, you know, but I, the introduction of melodics and, 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 and half sung, half rap songs in the last six to eight years, I've, I love it. I love it. And man, I don't even know where to begin with this song because, um, well, I love it so much. Juice, I never got to interview him, which I'm sad about because uh, he was not, uh, not only do I think he was really like a, a, a special talent, but because he got, because he did make very emotional hip hop and kind of hard on your sleeve, melodic music. I think a lot of people didn't really realize that he was a real, I mean, he could, that guy could really freestyle too. I mean, I mean, the, the hardcore fans know that he, he had that talent. Um, obviously there's four great artists on this track. Um, as you've said, three out of four of them Chicagoans. Um, and I just, I chose this because um, he has a song called Righteous that I almost put on instead of this, that came out earlier this year. He's had a lot of posthumous singles um, come out since he died, at, which was coming up in a year, it was December of last year. And I, I remember I got a call that morning um, from my editor at Billboard asking me if I would write something. And I was like, I, I, you know, when you hear that news and then you're asked to write something immediately, it's like, and I was barely awake and I, I it, it's like, and he wanted it in like an hour. Um, it, it's tough. And I'd, I'd done the same thing for Little Peep two years earlier. And, you know, when he says, I seen my brothers fall over and over again, you know, that can mean a lot of things. It might, whether that's to violence, whether it's to drugs, whether it's to whatnot. But, you know, we had seen in quite yearly succession, Little Peep's death, XXXTentacion's death, and then Juice just, and in Juice's case, it was just so, I mean, you guys know how it happened, right? It was at Midway Airport, right? Yeah. And, yep. um, and I don't know. It's just, it, it's, but, you know, like they, it's a cliche, but there's still the music and there's a lot of, apparently there was a lot of unreleased music. And, uh, uh, and then also just, I mean, in the larger sense, if there's ever a year in which a song called PTSD was at home, it's this year. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess that's all I really I have to say about it. Um, you know, rest in peace, Juice, and all those all those guys. You know, it's um, it's the death of anyone is is tragic, but when it happens, it you know, Juice had a song called Legends that came out like a year before he died on his last album, and in his last tour, and it Legends, and it was about people who died young, and in his last tour, he had behind him a video loop playing of Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain and Tupac and Biggie and on and on and on and um. And I think he had just added Nipsey Hussle actually to it when I saw him, because Nipsey had just died a month or two before the show that I saw the show I saw anyway. 
and it really brought it all home to you. And there's a line in the song about 27 Club. I don't, we ain't even making it to 21. And that was a direct reference to Peep, who had literally just turned 21, like two. I saw Peep the night he turned 21. I, 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 I know this episode is really dark. It's probably your darkest like oh, podcast. Ever. But like I saw his last New York show and it was like he was his birthday was November 1st and it was on Halloween of 2017. And so he was there on stage as he turned 21. Two weeks later, he was dead in Tucson, Arizona. And it's just and then I went to his memorial out on Long Island and talking about this shit, it's, it's kind of hard because these are kids who just, you know, and then XXX, it was a different situation. He was killed in Florida. Um, but he, you know, he was 20, 20 or 21 at the time too, so. Yeah, when you talk about the 27 Club, that's something that, you know, that also, I don't know if you can see in the background, but that's uh, Jeff Buckley tribute stuff. That, oh, wow. That I had uh, from when we did, uh, you know, we did the Jeff Buckley thing here in Chicago for, for people like that. And you covered that as well, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suddenly, I only saw Jeff once actually, but it was very, I, I'll always remember it. You know, he's a, yeah. another extremely, a very special person. Well, let's keep with the uh, angst theme here. Uh, yeah, we're gonna start to get a little more, you know, a little more upbeat here. Uh, we've got Welcome to the Black Parade uh, from My Chemical Romance. We'll play a little bit and then we'll shed it up. I, did you see my note? Can we like, yeah. so I just wanted to, before we play it, I just want to set it up by saying that the, well, it's one of my favorite songs of all time, but but also like the one of the reasons I wanted you to just play the first note of it, which people will hear in a second, is because uh, recently, of all people, Andrew Lloyd Webber responded to a tweet from a, some a random fan of MCR who said, I can't believe there hasn't been a, like a goth stage musical made based on the Black Parade album, right? And somehow Andrew Lloyd Webber saw this and so he, he shot a TikTok where he goes, hello, everyone. I'm sure that Broadway musical fans know this. And he plays the arpeggio from Phantom of the Opera. And he goes, but for you other kinds of music fans, I bet you know what I'm talk what song it is when I just play it. And you just hit a G note. And I, I, I watched that and I'm like, I, I, if all I heard was that note, I damn sure would think of that song. Um, and I know that a lot of certain er certain genres Honor music fans would definitely know it. Anyway, you can go, go yeah, ahead. I'm going to play here in honor of Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> and Gerard Way. Right. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. He said, son, when you grow up, would you be the savior of the broken, the beaten and the damned? He said, will you defeat them, your demons and all the non-believers, the plans that they've made? Because one day I'll leave you to lead you in the summer to join the Black Parade. There we go. 
So yeah, I, clearly a gigantic face. Just one of those songs that just like gets you, gets you pumped well, up. Well, hundred percent gets me pumped up and um, gets me like emotional too. Uh, I don't, I don't even know. God, how do I, how do I, how do I do justice to this song? This is like the, as far as I'm concerned, the tour de force of the whole what we might call emo rock era. You know, I was, I, you know, TRL flourished during that time. So, you know, and all respect to Blink and Good Charlotte and Fall Out Boy and Panic of the Disco and all those bands, but MCR were for me special because they had not only this tortured quality, but also because of Gerard, like a, a, a kind of a cartoonish send up quality to a lot of what they did until they got to the Black Parade, which was this, you know, I remember back in the day, people comparing it to something like something like Queen would have done, like mm -hmm. Bohemian Rhapsody or something. And I know why they sort of said that, but what it touched on, you know, what it, what it revealed that their magnum opus had to do with um, being a champion of the underdog. It's hard for me to talk about, guys, <laughs> because my mom, who died a long time ago, she passed away years ago. You know, we came from a comfortable background, but she would always tell me to never, you know, forget that there are, are people who aren't and who don't. And um, so, you know, I it's it might sound corny. And I like I said earlier, talking about the other song, you know, that's okay. People can think that that my love of music like songs like this is corny. I'll, I'll, I will own corniness, you know, but, um, but yeah, the idea of being a savior, the broken, the beaten, the damn, that can mean a lot of things, you know, whether that means Bernie Sanders or it means, you know, it means a lot of things in a current context, you know, to me. And, uh, but, and then there's, you know, the, the, the way that the, this song has so many changes in it as well, musical changes in it as well. Um, you know, back toward the end of it, it's like, I won't explain or say, I'm sorry, I'm unashamed to show my scars, give a cheer for all the all the broken people, listen here. Um, it's just, I, it's, I can't say enough about it. Plus it's one of my favorite videos of all time. Sam Baird just did, you know, he's obviously, he's an icon of that era. Sam Baird did a ton of Green Day videos and, and um, it's in a way, I think there's a, a good parallel between the Black Parade and American Idiot, you know, Green Day's American Idiot. Because um, they were these conceptual records that sort of forced you to see this band that you were thought was kind of a, maybe a little bit of a knuckleheaded punk, you know, punk, emo punk band in the case of MCR in a new light, you know. Um, but, um, and then as I said earlier in the, when we were started, you know, MCR kind of went away. They put out a couple more albums after that. And then around 2012 or 13, I believe it was, or 14, Gerard decided he felt like he'd said his piece with, with this band and, and, and that he wanted to, and he's an incredibly talented um, illustrator and, and Comic books, right? graphic novels and stuff. And, um, and, and kind of, and he, he, that was it for the band until very recently, just last year. You know, they did a reunion show in LA. That's, I mean, it had, it was not, the tickets were not cheap and it sold out in a heartbeat. And then they were all set to do a reunion tour this year and then COVID happened. So it's all been pushed back. But um, they are going to be doing the, re, supposedly doing the reunion tour starting in June 
of next year. And uh, I can't wait to see them again. Cause where, where is your favorite place to see a band in New York? Um, I guess it's changed a little bit. I mean, for convenience sake, I really like Music Hall of Williamsburg. I don't like places that are too big. Mm -hmm. um, Brooklyn Steel is our, Brooklyn Steel opened a few years ago and to a lot of excitement because it's a bigger venue and it was it's in Brooklyn and people didn't have to go into the city to go to it. I don't, I don't love it. It's for me, it's a little bit of a barn, but um, I, I, I do like smaller places. I like elsewhere a lot. Do you guys know the, don't know? Okay. Oh, I don't know. I, I know some of the places there, yeah. but nothing really in Brooklyn. I know more of the stuff in the yeah. city from back in the day. Well, so elsewhere is great. Baby's All Right, which is in Williamsburg, is, is, is super fun. Um, uh, so those are some of them. And then the, the standbys like Bowery Ballroom and, you know, yeah. Webster, Webster Hall actually closed for a complete renovation, they were bought out by BSC Brooklyn Sports Entertainment, which runs Barclay Center and, and everything. And but they closed, and I covered the last week of shows at Webster Hall, which is just you know an iconic venue here. Yeah. Um, and for Billboard, I a few years ago, and the last week of shows um, was it was super fun. Title the Creator played a show and. Good Charlotte, those dudes, I hadn't seen them in a long time. They played one of the, it was like every night there was a different um, Skrillex. So they had like a different genre, you know, every night. Um, it was, it, that was super fun. That was super fun to do. So the, the last time back before I was a comedian, I was a musician and we got to, the bands that I managed and played with, we got to play at CBGB's the week, like almost a year before it shut down. What were your thoughts on CBGB's really quick? Did you have like any, uh, uh, I, you know, I tended to see, I don't, I never, I don't think I ever saw anyone famous there. Cause I think by the time I got to New York, I, it, I mean, it was still open, but <clears throat> it was more like it was, I saw local bands there. I saw a, a friend of mine's brother had a cool band that I don't think they're together anymore. Cause that was a long time ago, but, <clears throat> um, so I would just go there. Um, I mean, it was great. It's, it's, you know, it's, I couldn't wait when I first got to New York, arrived in New York. It was one of the first places I wanted to see. I mean, they were just, you know, I went to NYU. So these places were all places that were iconic for different reasons for me. I had to go see CBGB's. I had to go see the Stonewall Inn. I had to go see, you know, I mean, it was like, I don't know. It's- it's Chine, live at yeah. too from the- Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of them are, are obviously no more. I remember the old Knitting Factory was a really cool yeah. venue. Um, and then, then they, then they opened one in, in Williamsburg, which is still open, but it was, it doesn't, it just doesn't have quite the charm of the old Anyway. Speaking of a time that's lost, but not forgotten, we're coming to the last song, which for me was huge. One of my favorite songs and one of my favorite bands of all time. We talk about it on the podcast a lot. Um, yeah, was, you've already talked about you've already talked about this song a lot. Oh yeah, we talk about the this, band, the band a lot. The band, uh, it song. comes up a lot. One of my one of my favorite things to do uh, is if I'm I'm feeling pretty good at home, I'll watch old uh, like I watch the MTV Ultrasound that I think you narrated about the Smashing Pumpkins, and it was kind of their their rise to fame or whatever. Uh, this video, famously, they lost the, they lost the, the, it was on top of the car and they drove off and uh, yes. they had to reshoot the whole video yeah. twice or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, we can talk a lot about it, but like the video too is just like, God, oh my God, I, what a poetic, beautiful, what, what, 
Valerie and Jonathan did with that video, like from the opening, the key, uh, the kid uh, rolling in the tire. I mean, the I I have a uh, one of my favorite screenshots is there's a car. You may remember the car they're riding in. You see the back shot of it and the license. Uh, there's a sticker on it on the back of the car that says "Proud Parents of a D Student." Oh yeah. And um, I don't know. It's just I can't say enough about well, this. Anyway, go ahead if you want. Let's let's start it. We're going to talk about it more uh, when we have break. But let, this is 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, does it need any more introduction? Mm -hmm. uh, I know we're going to talk a little about more. Uh, I know there's a part we're going to play out in a little second here, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, this song for me was when I was playing in band and to learn that that riff in the beginning and learn the hook and all that stuff as a musician it was it was life-changing because i learned how to play the guitar on siamese dream and and these songs um i mean i shouldn't say i learned i played these songs live for people for wow. years and billy corgan to me is a legend i feel like one of the greatest of all time but let's so here comes the hook yeah here's the So you had a, you had a, something you had told us about where you actually had talked to Billy Corgan about this yeah. song you sort of told I mean, I, I, I've only interviewed him a couple times, but the first time I did was, was with Siamese Dream. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, with Melancholy. And um, which, by the way, Melancholy just celebrated its 25th anniversary right. two weeks ago, I think. I saw that. Right? Yeah. Um, and I, it was high. I don't know why I have such a connection to this song. Um, I, I guess I sort of do. It's because I have a, a perpetual connection to a certain adolescent mentality that I think I don't think I'll ever really let go of. But um, I told him, like, when you, I, we don't even care to shake these zipper blues. We don't know just where our bones will rest. I said, I said, like, dude, you can just drop the mic. As far as I'm concerned, that hook. It's like you don't even need to do anything else. That that you're already as far as I'm concerned, you're in the fucking pantheon. And he and he like just laughed and he's like, I know other people who feel just like you do and who connect to that. And he goes, I came in and he goes and you know, there's, I think there's a famous story about how it almost didn't make it on the record, because um, they were like he couldn't finish it or something, and like, and there was some question about whether it fit. Uh, but, um, I think that, that lyric, you know, um, um, uh, we, we, we feel, uh, what is it? Uh, we don't even care. We, we don't even care as restless as we are. We feel the pull in the land of a thousand guilts, man. I'm like, it's like, dude, you can't, to me, that's like, that's catcher in the rye level. That's, that's. Yeah that's basketball diaries level connection with what it means to be young and like, and, and, and feel like, and to live for today. And, you know, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm rambling here and not really making a lot of sense, but, um, but I, it's, 
Um, it's, it's, that is poetry, that song. And uh, I love a lot of Smashing Pumpkins, but that, I mean, that's, yeah. to me, that's Head and Shoulders. And, and we talked about it earlier where bands kind of like keep going and, uh, and we kind of briefly touched on the fact that. Oh yeah. His re, uh, reorganization skills um, in, in trying to bring back the band in different formats. Like what, what are your thoughts on the new stuff that he's put out and. Uh, well, I've enjoyed some of it. The, you know, they got a new record coming out in like two weeks, I think, or three weeks uh, called Seer. And the songs I've heard from that are, um, I like them. They're more, you know, he's more in a sort of a electronic, more of a dancey kind of, you know, uh, electronic, uh, definitely a, a, a dancier kind of vibe. Um, and Jimmy is back and James E. Hart back. Yeah. Um, so like Darcy, apparently I, they've tried and that just hasn't happened. Yeah, it's not happening. Um, but you know, I think the, I think that the sustaining a band for 25 years, 30, well, actually 30 now, the band's been around, I think more than 30. Yeah. Um, it's a, obviously it's a challenge because is, is your moment wanes because inevitably it's going to wane. Um, it, you know, it, how you keep the band, keep everyone interested and engaged especially if it is at its core, one person creatively, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, as we've seen with that band, it's been Billy and other people over, right. over time, you know? Um, and I think bringing the, bringing the old band back together, that kind of thing is done as much for fans as it is for any real musical need, right, to do that. But I don't know. I mean, sustaining a band for that long often, I mean, there are other examples of bands that are basically continuing on with the band name, but are no, nothing more than one member left. Right? right. There's a lot of that. And I think yeah. for, for me, at least as a Pumpkins fan, I, watching when James Eha came back, because I know Jam Jimmy came back earlier yeah. a few times, but when James came back and I think they did a show, um, at Webster Hall, I want to say, like when they came back, it was in New York where they performed, and then they came out and just did a, a song with just James and 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 Billy. Uh -huh. and I thought I was like, wow, this is this is amazing to me. I, I I remember when he came back, and I I was kind of surprised because I used to see James when I lived in the East Village. Now I live in Brooklyn, but I used to see him in my like Starbucks a lot, like, and we'd say hi and just we didn't chat much. But I've never in a million years would have said so. Any, <laughs> any desire to get back? Look, you know, uh, he he was doing his own thing and like. Right. But um, it's nice when enough water has passed under the bridge that people can get back can do that. You know, um, I think they did a big 30th anniversary show in New Jersey like uh, two or three years ago, and they had like. Davey Havoc and Courtney Love were there. Like it was a kind of an all-star affair. And I remember wishing I'd been able to be at that. Um, you know, I mean, politically, and I, I don't mean like necessarily blue versus red politically, but just culturally politically, I have some differences with Billy, but you know, I'm that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I just He's probably to the right of me. I would. I'm get. I'm guessing. We haven't. I haven't interviewed him. I haven't interviewed him in a long time. 
And I know he's, I know he's, I know he's a big, he's a big wrestling dude. Yes, he is. Yeah. He owns the national wrestling alliance yeah. now. So uh, I get to see him in, in both the music and the, uh, oh, the wrestling world. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah cool. Wild. Like they're friends who wrestle for that company and they're just like, Oh yeah. Like Billy Corgan is telling us like, and then you're going to throw him through the table and then get the pin. <laughs> it's just like, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. That is interesting with those, like how you said, just when there's water under the bridge. Cause I love, I love a good music documentary and I don't know, sometimes when you do see people who are still like, I hate him and I'll never talk to him again. Like with certain bandmates, you're just like still after all these years, like, okay, I guess you got to hand it to you. Like you're holding that grudge until yeah. the end. I remember I, the first time I met Johnny Marr was at a, a festival. It was the Virgin. So this is how long ago it was the Virgin music festival at Pimlico in Baltimore, like 2000, I don't know, nine or 10 or something. And he was there doing a solo gig, solo, solo set. And, but he like knew, I couldn't believe he knew who I was. Cause I was, I mean, I wasn't really, I wasn't on air or anything. When the Smiths are like in their heyday, I wasn't like on camera or anything like that. But he, he, he came up to me and, um, and you know, he was just so, he was so happy to, I just, I don't think he's really, and also Morrissey is honestly, I have a lot of respect you as well politically. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Look, we're just, I think the less said about. Yeah, right. You know, there are people, the John Lydons and Morrissey's of the world, I'd rather not. Um, yeah. I don't, they I, they I, definitely I, push the separating the artist from the art narrative. There's certain. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, okay, they, I'm still going to dig that song, but oh boy. We make it a challenge. Yeah. Morrissey played a bunch of shows on at a Broadway theater a few couple years ago, and I. I just wouldn't, my friend, my friend is a huge, huge fan. I am a fan, but he's a huge fan. And he's like, I can't believe you're not going to go to one. I'm like, I'm kind of done, kind of done with, him. and not just like, I don't, he's just, it's too much. I'm sorry, you know, but like I, the old, the old saying, everything is political. Kind of, I'm at the point in life where everything is kind of political. You yeah. Know? I mean, right now, it's just, we might look back, but it's just like, everything's political. I'm blown away that like Trump will play these songs where it's like, have you listened to the lyrics of these songs? Yet you play them at your, like Fortunate Son is like literally about a dude like him. And it's like, yeah. you're playing this yeah. song coming out like, hey, look at this song. Right, right. And every, I feel like every time I see a live shot from one of his non unmasked, social, un, not socially distanced rallies, their tiny dancer is playing in the background. And yeah. I'm like, why doesn't Elton have a problem with this? Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I, I, but maybe, I honestly, I don't know where the law is on how much an artist can prohibit that. Do you know? Do you have an announcement? As a lawyer, I should know that, but I, I think it's, I mean, they could, they could say all they want, but uh, they're just going to violate it and then they have to pay royalties, but they can make a demand to cease and desist all they want. I mean, they shouldn't be playing it but then again, how do you enforce it if it's already been done? You can you can get royalties for it, and that's about it. But playing music, there's I mean, they can just demand it all they want. And yeah, the fact yeah. that it's being done is is pretty amazing to the level that it's happening now. You know, you see John Fogarty coming on Fogarty, the Stones, everybody. It, yeah, I'm gonna know. assume Trump's not a lyric guy. He's more of a, like your buddy, just a music right. guy, like. What was that last lyric? And he's like, I don't know. I just like how it sounds in my brain. Yeah. They're like, well, this sounds I mean, macho, man. We could try a good one to do. We don't have to worry about the backstory on this. Yeah. 
And he's and like seeing him dancing around a YMCA. I'm like, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Google that lyric where they go, you can hang out with all the boys. What do you yeah, think they're right. talking about? Yeah. yeah. I feel like if you tell them, like, you know, Rob Halper from Judas Priest is gay, right? He came out and he's like, but I didn't know anything about that. Like, it's just over his head or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. You, you brought something up about Morrissey and then some of the stuff we've been talking about. Do you think there's a, uh, and, and I've seen your pattern of music as you've as you uh, as you, you've talked about what you're listening to now as opposed to being a retrofobe uh, yeah. and, and not going back. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a feeling, we've had someone on the show say before, like there's a certain point where you've heard a song and that's it. Like there's a level, it's like, I love that song, but no more. Like I can't hear it anymore. Do you- Like new, 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 new songs, you mean? Well, no, like for me, I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan. Uh, and you know, there's certain songs that, you know, even Ben Folds, I was a big fan for a while, but then at a certain point, it's like, I've heard like whether the number is 1,242 times, is there a limit where it's like, okay, I don't need to hear Stairway to Heaven anymore. I've heard it enough. Or do you feel like it's some songs? I mean, I don't, because I don't hear older music very often, because I, I simply just, I'm so busy keeping up with new releases and things. I, I really just, I'm rarely in a situation where I hear like say a classic, you know, classic rock station or a classic hip hop station. I just, I just, I don't, I'm not, I'm not avoiding it, but there's only so many hours in the day, you know? And so, I, I guess the answer is I don't hear things enough regularly, older stuff, that I get sick of them. Like um, sometimes I'll be in, I don't know, supermarket or wherever, and they'll have a oldie station on or something, and and I'll hear, I don't know, uh, something I'm just I'm trying to think of a good example. Pearl Jam, because that's considered oldies now. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, that's fine. I'll hear like um, Corduroy. Corduroy is probably my favorite Pearl Jam song. And and like, I think I did get tired of it in the mid, you know, after a few years of it. But now still when I hear it, I'll get excited to hear it again. Um, because I just don't hear them that often. I think that's what it is. Yeah, now it seems like if you're getting sick of a song, it's because you played it multiple times. Yeah, because yeah whether it's MTV or the radio, those aren't like tastemakers anymore, where it's, you're pretty much programming your own music. Because uh, I, I, I don't have a car, I rented a car and it had Sirius satellite radio and I'm driving and I'm flipping the channels and it's just like the same, you know, 50 songs oh, over and over I again. Have, I, have a, I have a Sirius desktop radio here, which not a lot of people have. It's Sirius is mainly obviously designed for cars, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, and, 90% of their music channels are retro in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, you really have to, between, there's Hip Hop Nation, which is current hip hop. Mm -hmm. but even they have, from my taste, too much like stuff from like two, three, four years ago. And that's, I mean, they need, they, and there's obviously, they, they, they do their research, right? I mean, there's yeah. reasons that they have so much, yeah. uh, especially with commuters, especially with people in cars. I think they yeah. want to, you know, my sister is a good example. She'll sit or she'll drive around LA and listen to 80s on eight or 90s on nine on Sirius. And I'm like, why are we, I'll be with her. I'm like, why are we listening to this? I'm like, what do you mean? This is your time. And I'm like, do not say, this is, this is the problem. Do not say this is my time. 
or I'll be at a show and someone like an older person, meaning older like me, will come over to me or even younger than me and go, and just nicely introduce them, polite and everything, but they'll be like, you know, music's just really not, it's not really like what it once was, right? And they'll expect me to like commiserate with them about yeah. how it sucks now. And I'm like, no, there's a lot of good music now. Right. You need to make a little bit of an effort. Mm -hmm. And I understand why. It's not like movies where, you know, if a person is at this point in life where they've got kids and they've got other responsibilities, these still it's hard to it's hard to not, not be aware of movie releases, especially if they're big Hollywood releases, right? It's everywhere, right? But with with I think with music, you still have to make an effort. Yes, we've got multitude of streaming services. Yes, you know, you know, music videos have I think had a renaissance in the last 10 years, but you still got to make a little bit of an effort. And I Whenever, whenever people are like, oh, John, you know, Peter Pan complex, you don't want to, you know, you, that's why. You, and I'm like, why are you trying to like come at me for the fact that I like new music? You know, yeah. it's like, does that, you know what I mean? I always like, tell people when they say that to me, I go, you know, a lot of people, it's common. They stop searching for new music after high school or college. And that instantly yeah. puts it on them. Cause it's like, my test is Saturday Night Live. If I don't know the, the guest host or the musical band, I'm just like, uh-oh, am I like crawling back into my, you know, late 90s bubble or whatever? It's like, no, 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 you got to watch all these new things. And from doing this podcast, we, I mean, I've got songs that I would have never right. heard before, but people younger, older, whatever, have been like, have you heard this? And it's like, oh, I have not. And I love hearing a new song. And, and, you know, now what's so great, like I remember back in the day, somebody would wear a shirt on MTV and you'd be like, what, who is that? What is that band? I guess I want to listen to them if Kurt Cobain's wearing their shirt. And then you'd have to go to the store. You know, now it's just like, okay, yeah, I like that band too. I can tell why they're, you know, uh, remember, when, remember when Kurt wore that Daniel Johnston yep. alien shirt, yep. you know? That was it. That, that spurred so much interest in Daniel and who's like such a special artist. May he rest in peace. And I, yeah. I, I uh, that was cool. That things like that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, or a tweet from somebody who could just be like, this is such a great song. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, yeah. that could make uh, uh, somebody in their bedroom, like we talked about earlier, who's making music all of a sudden now, it's just like, that's the coolest the thing. Last, I mean, the last thing I'll say about this, you know, because it all, it all, it all, I think broadly, look, if you guys get me starting talking about the topic of ageism, well, I could, we can do a two, <laughs> you know, another two hours on that, but, but, but one of the ways in which ageism in my life really manifests itself is being a music writer. There, is, there are few professions where there is such a sort of age bias, you know, and this assumption that, I don't think film writers get this. I don't think once you turn no, 40, for 50, sure. yeah, 40 right. 50, people don't say to you, well, you should only be writing about movies being made by 40 and 50 year olds, right? But. I, and I look, I'm a freelancer, so I can write about essentially what I want to write about. And people can try to ask me to do things and I might do them or might not do them. But when people come to me with, with when editors come to me and ask me to write things, eight out of 10 are older artists. Nine out of 10 of what I pitch are newer and emerging and younger artists. And, they, and a lot of them, to their credit, are down to have me do it. They're like, cool, you know? But um, there, is a, there, is a, there is an idea out there that 
why should a person of a certain age be writing about a 20 year old artist? I think that's nonsense. I, I, I mean, like, you know, I don't know. It's a yeah, very strange- like Guys like Siskel and Ebert, it's like the talk away, but if they were talking about music, it would be like, what are these two old white guys talking about music for? Yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Right, right. Especially, you know, but then what, when I get, when I actually do the interview, when I talk to the artist, they're like, oh, he really does know what I'm doing and he really gets it. And he's like, and they're like, you know, cool. That was one of the best interviews I've done. I can't tell you how many people say that when I, and I'm not, that's not blowing my own horn. I just, I just do the homework, you know? I've had young, young writers say to me, what's the key to doing, you know, good interviews and stuff. And I'm like, just put in the work. Just don't be lazy about it. And I mean, I, you know, I, I see a lot of young writers who are amazing. And then I see a lot who are just phoning it in. And, you know, look, getting work in journalism, especially arts journalism, music journalism is hard enough. You know, don't, you, you can't half-ass it, you know? I mean, if you want to do it, do it, but be serious about it. That's, anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't want to- no, yeah, Sometimes we'll have to do like morning radio or morning, you know, shows in like a small town, we're doing comedy shows. Yeah. And they clearly just read like a little bio and they're just like, so, and it's like, let me guess, we're just going to talk about these three sentences <laughs> yeah. you read off a website before I came right. on. You. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're an artist, of course you want the good questions. And I'm sure you notice when they're like, oh, okay, you know where I'm from and you know my influences and stuff. Like, oh, okay, we can have this deeper conversation than just like, you know, I remember, the, I think it's like in, in Wayne's World too, when they're talking to the guy, the DJ, and the, as they're talking, he's just going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're like, you're not paying attention to us at all. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like, there are interviews like that. Still to this well, of course, day. of course, of course. An interview, the best interviews are conversations. You can't be, you can't be thinking about the next question when someone's answering your, your last question, you, yeah. you know, it's going to be obvious to them that you're not listening. And how, whether someone is prepared or not becomes very quickly apparent to the artist. And, um, you know, people, sometimes people ask me, I'm not, and I'm not going to just, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to answer the question, but they'll be like, who's your worst, who's, a, who's the worst person, who's the biggest asshole you've ever, ever interviewed? And there were a few people that I gave them two or three chances and they were they were kind of jerks each time. So they have been cemented in my head as being not anyone I ever need to talk to again. But um, by and large, I mean, you can count those people on two hands. Most people are, also it's not in their interest to be a dick because they're promoting something usually when you oh, get yeah. a chance to talk to them, you know? Yeah. Back yeah. in the day, you kind of got points for being a dick. You were like mysterious or like brooding. Yeah, kind of yeah. Like or, you, or that was punk rock to, to be like, you know, but um, I used to, okay, here's an example. Cause I can say, I can say this because, because they evolved. I used to dread in the early nineties, every, and I've interviewed him like five, interviewed him over the years, like four or five times. Every time I'd have to talk to the Beastie Boys cause I knew they were going to try and fuck with me. And like, they, they were just, that was their, their shtick, you know, and like to make make it difficult. And um, I wasn't, I didn't have an early on, I didn't have a tough enough skin, you know, and I, and now I'd be like, whatever guys, you know, but I don't know if I would ever really encounter anyone now, especially as a freelancer that was going to be like that. But my point with the beasties is that over time they just became adults. And, you know, especially once, once Yalk sort of like, became a more conscious human being and when he embraced the Tibetan cause and everything. And, and um, that was, 
you could just see a change, you know, you could just see it change. They, you know, these guys who once had a, like inflatable dick on stage back in the eighties and they had a, they had a designated, and I'm not kidding. They called him the trim coordinator who would go out in the crowd and, and, and collect the ladies. Um, uh, you know, Fast forward with the VMAs, they gave the speech about like you can't disrespect women and stuff. And right, exactly. No, that's my that's my point. And who's and 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 uh, and who's Ad Rock married to now? Kathleen Hanna, right? One of the great feminists of our time. So like, that's my point. You know, we we evolve and we should be allowed to evolve. And and uh, I don't have any burning desire to talk to Eminem again. But you know what? I'm, maybe if I had a chance to again, it would not go as horribly as it did the first couple of times I talked to him. But uh, who knows? I don't know. Well, there's a there's a reason why you're still doing what you're doing, and, and you know I always say rises good stuff rises to the top. You obviously the fact that you knew were able to provide all these insight on these young artists. Yeah. I can only imagine what it, it, it's like for them to have someone of your caliber to know and understand their music. So. I mean, man, you know, sometimes they don't even, because if they're under 25 or three, they, ne you know, they never saw me on, on the MTV. And, but like, I went to see Lil Zan, that kid, he's a, he's a, he's a <laughs> I went to see him a couple of years ago and he was like 18. He didn't, I, he didn't, I mean, and the publicists want to take me backstage to meet him afterwards. And I, I wasn't like, I don't care. I don't want him to know know who I am. That doesn't interest me. I just want to say hi. But his security, his manager, his road manager, his tour manager, they saw me and they were all like, who that is? And, and then, then it was like a big deal for him. Um, uh, but I don't, I, I don't want it to be a big deal. I'm just a guy who likes music, who wants to write about music. And I, I'll take a cubicle next to any 22 year old. That's all I'm saying, you know. Um, but people don't want to let you do that. They won't let you do that. Anyway, I'm I've vented enough about ageism. Uh, <laughs> no, no, we I get it. Thank you yeah. so much. We're older uh, comics too, so we get it. John, before we let you know, <laughs> is there anything that you want to uh, promote for have the people check out, or any bands too that you uh, are sort of championing lately? Oh gosh, um, let me think about this. Um, who am I really? Who am I really digging these days? Um, well, look, I'm going to show you. This is a packet of stickers. This is this is how like 14 years old I am. A packet of stickers from Brockhampton, and Brockhampton are they're not new. They've been around for five years, but they are this hip hop pop collective from LA, led by Kevin Abstract, who is just. I mean, they are to me. They embody, they embody what music ought to be about. They're, you know, twelve. I think is the current lineup. Dudes to like work collectively. Everybody sort of like does a bit of the work. There's a whole, there's a real communal mentality to the way they operate. And um, again, not not brand new artists, um, but uh, just in a, every every time I've I've seen them live like four times, and it's just always such a it's a it's a really it's a hardening experience to see artists work like that. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other artists I can I could uh, I can recommend. I mean, well, I encourage people to find out more about your your latest stuff. What's your what's the go to for you to find? Um, well, they can go to my Billboard page. You know, Billboard.com. Uh, John Norris is uh, slash John Norris, or 
my muckrack, which has got other articles. And under that, it's Johnny Nono, which is my Twitter handle. So if people want to check out my, I've just warned them though, Twitter on Twitter, I'm super like political and like, I don't really, so. If I, think everyone, play, I think everyone is right now. Yeah, that I is to be without saying. I 90% go. of Twitter right now is political. So you're fine. Right. I mean, okay. Just warning, just, just a warning about that. And, and I also talk about foot, soccer a lot. Um, uh, that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, God, I wish on, I, I, I could think of more names for you off the top of my head, but, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, come back on if you ever yeah. want. We'd yeah, love, love you to come back on and give us a five new songs so when you have another uh, theme. And uh, yeah, yeah. in honor of, uh, of the, uh, the Backstreet Boys and Neutral Milk Hotel, we'll, uh, we'll end with this song right here. Oh. Who, knows? Who knows what would have happened had you played these for the boys back in the day? <laughs> they would have had their own white album. <laughs> All right, thank you again so much for doing the show. Thank, thank you. you, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, stay, stay high to Chicago. Listening to a new episode of Make Us a Mixtape. Take care. Thanks, John. Thanks. Have a good one.